The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Julia Tertian. She is a noted writer, recipe developer, and cookbook author with interests spanning far beyond the kitchen. Her latest cookbook stirs in activism and politics, and it's titled Feed the Resistance, Recipes and Ideas for Getting Involved. Ms. Tertian has been a radio host herself, hosting the first two seasons of Radio Cherry Bomb on Heritage Radio Network, which featured live interviews with some of the most interesting women in the food world. She teaches cooking and writing classes and has hosted panels and is a featured keynote speaker nationally. She lives with her family in upstate New York. Welcome, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's start with the beginning of your story, and that is, how did you become interested in doing food work? It's a hard question for me to answer because it's really the only thing I've ever been interested in. And I have loved food and been, you know, my happiest in the kitchen since before I can remember. And I'm definitely one of those kind of rare people that have known what they've loved to do and what they're passionate about since I was very, very young. And I really taught myself how to cook through cookbooks when I was a child. And even before I could read, I just fell in love with the photographs and flipped through the pictures. And then as soon as I could read, I was reading the stories behind the food. I was getting into the kitchen. I was cooking all these amazing things from all over the world, which I was able to do just from my home through cookbooks. And I was just always in love with them and always just fantasized about getting to make them. And I sort of combined my love of cookbooks, my love of food with studying writing. So I I went to college to study writing, to study basically communication, how to read and write well. And I got definitely my foot in the door when I was in school because I went to school in New York City. So I started interning at food magazines, doing that kind of work. And one thing sort of led to another. And yeah, working on cookbooks was basically the thing I've always wanted to do and the thing I've always done. And, and I love it. Well, tell me, what got you to make the leap between the cookbook and advocacy? Sure. I think what got me to make the leap, and specifically to make Feed the Resistance, was definitely it was a result of the most recent presidential election. And I found myself, like many people, kind of desperate for something positive and productive to do. And I wanted to add to that conversation in a purposeful way. I thought a lot about what can I offer and what I know how to do is put together a cookbook. And then I thought a lot about the work I was doing in my own community and realizing being involved in my community is being politically active, um, which I hadn't always necessarily considered myself. So I connected those dots. And then to make the book, I thought, if I'm going to do this, I want it to be way bigger than me and representative of a much larger group of people. So I reached out to over 20 of just the smartest and most interesting people I know in and around food and the result is Feed the Resistance, and it has contributions from all those people, recipes, essays. All of the proceeds from the book go to the ACLU, which is really important to me because I wanted readers to feel like, even just by buying the book, you're 
protecting civil liberties and supporting that. So it's a lot in a small package. It's a, you know, it's a little book if you don't have it, but there's a lot in it. It is. It's a little book. It's a little bombshell that really helps <laughs> people me. connect those dots between the food that we buy and eat and share, prepare for others, and creating a better society. And I thought it was really interesting. You've described the book very well in that you've got a collection of essays along with recipes. But in one of the essays, there is an explanation that in 1969, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense began their free breakfast for school children program out of St. Augustine's Church in Oakland, California. And it was a program that was designed to ensure the survival and self-determination of young black children. You know, it's a feeding program, and yet it was a program that J. Edgar Hoover called the most dangerous domestic threat to national security. I don't get it. Feeding children, keeping them well. How on earth could that be a dangerous domestic threat to national security? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with you. I think a big part of that is just the racial implications of that work and what that meant to that administration. And I think that's something that continues to be echoed today. And I think the work of the Black Panthers, feeding their community, giving them these tools, really sustaining a community is very much about sustaining a culture, protecting your community, ensuring a future for it. And I think it's such an amazing example of the power of food to really build a community and hold a community together. That's exactly what I was just thinking. That is the perfect essay to demonstrate the power of food. And so that is what this book is. It's a collection of essays from, as you say, some of 20 people who are certainly active in their communities trying to make a better world. And I thought of the word activism, and I know that in some of the circles where I live, Activism is portrayed in the media as a negative. If you're looking out for clean water, if you're looking to feed children, and you are coming up against the industrial system, for example, you are labeled negatively as an activist. How do we put a positive spin on that word? Sure, yeah. I think that question brings up a lot of just interesting points about semantics and the way certain actions can be interpreted. And when I was saying I'm someone who's always been really involved in my community, I, my love of food is something I've always taken with me into my community service work. You know, I've worked with different hunger relief organizations wherever I've lived, meal programs for people with chronic illness, and et cetera, et cetera. And I've always done that, but I never considered myself necessarily political or necessarily an activist. I just thought I was community-minded, and I was aware of privileges I had, and I just wanted to give back. And that's kind of how I thought about it. And I've really come to understand that those actions, those experiences are absolutely activism, and they're absolutely political. And I'm so happy about that. I'm proud of it. And activism is a badge I wear very proudly. And I think it can come off in this off-putting way, because I think if if you're an activist, you're confronting things that might not be great. And I think in confrontation comes a lot of discomfort. And it's not just asking for change, it's it's creating change. And I think that change can be very scary for a lot of people, especially people who are quite comfortable with the way things are. So I think those are some of the reasons. But I think really putting a positive spin on the term, understanding that activism is often so much about just bettering communities, making them 
safer and happier places to live that provide opportunities for everyone who lives in those communities. And I don't know how you could argue with that. I think that's a really positive thing. Yeah, and I think it deserves the discussion so that people can join you and me in wearing that badge and saying, yes, I am, you can call me an activist and you might try to attach a negative connotation to it, but really what we're talking about is working for better communities and how better to do that than through food. And with your expertise, your education in communication, I think you're really very well suited to tell this story and create this book. So thank you for that. I want to jump to the chapter on how food can impact communities. Mm. Being that you're in New York City, you have access to many different kinds of foods, many different ethnic markets, green markets. I have traveled as well, I'm sure as you, throughout the country, and you've probably come to communities where it is really hard to find good food. What kinds of stories have you collected and what have you witnessed in terms of how food impacts communities? Sure. Yeah. I mean, one interesting thing is, you know, I spent pretty much my whole life in New York City. I grew up in New York City, a short break when I was a teenager. I went to college in New York City. I stayed there for the next roughly 10 years. But three years ago, my wife and I relocated and we're just two hours north of New York City. So we're not that far, but it is very much like a whole different world. And we now live in a tiny town, population of around 500, and it couldn't be more different. And yeah, I grew up with access to amazing food from all over the world. You know, the markets you talk about, um, you know, I now live not terribly far from those, but where I live now is, I think, definitely much more representative of the majority of American towns. And it's definitely given me new insight into what is available and how food really enriches wherever you live. And the number of choices you have definitely dictates how dynamic your community is. So it's been just an interesting experience for me personally. But to answer your question about how food can impact communities, I think it's just that. I think food is a gateway to people and to culture. So when you go to a restaurant run by someone who is from somewhere different than you, or you go to a market that carries ingredients that aren't the ones you grew up with, all of these experiences enrich your life. You know, they make it more interesting and they teach you about more things. And I think that's one way food can impact communities. I think food is also because it's something we all need and hopefully get to have as much as we need it. Food is it's an economic opportunity. So for that person running that restaurant or that market, being in a place where people are interested in that food, that's that's a job, that's financial security for that person, for that family. Um, you know, food on a large scale is a whole other level of economic opportunity. Food touches everything. It's about agriculture. You know, I mentioned where I live now outside of New York City. It's a it's a farming community. So, you know, food it, it touches on all of us. It's about agriculture. It's about the economy. It's about immigration. It's, you know, it, it is truly about everything. It really is. It is at the heart of our society. One of the entries, the essays that I thought was so interesting was how food can help end recidivism. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about Jordan Lexton, sure, the executive yeah. director of Drive Change. So I would love to tell you about Jordan Lexton because Jordan is absolutely one of my heroes. So Jordan runs a program called Drive Change, which is a it's essentially a food truck program, but it's way more than that. And it started as 
just this one food truck, and it was a place for returning citizens, so, you know, people coming out of prison to come and work. And Jordan employs mostly young people, so I I believe it's 18 to 25-year-olds. And Jordan's background was that previous to starting Drive Change, Jordan worked at Rikers Island, which is a Mm -hmm. huge prison in New York City. And Jordan worked in, I believe, the high school that's part of the prison. And Jordan saw many students be in the classroom and then be released from prison and then very quickly come back, which is recidivism. And in seeing that problem happen over and over, I think a light bulb kind of went off and Jordan's answer was to create a program outside of the prison to address this problem. So drive change isn't just a food truck and it's not just a job. It's a community. All of the all the returning citizens who work at Drive Change are referred to as fellows, and the fellows receive all sorts of, of training and empowerment opportunities. And some stay with Drive Change, and some go on to take other jobs in the culinary industry. And it's an incredible program. And Drive Change was just given this big grant from, I believe, the city to scale what they're doing and train other programs to do similar things to what they're doing in whatever community they're in. And Jordan is someone who I just look to and look up to so much because I think in creating Drive Change, it was such a proactive response to a really major problem. And it's absolutely making a difference. And it's using food to do that. And, you know, I sort of naively asked Jordan to write an essay about how food can end recidivism. Jordan responded very intelligently and said, as long as the criminal justice system exists in the way it does, that problem won't go away. But I can tell you about how food can act as a part of healing and as a part of coping with trauma. And that's really what that essay is about. And it's a really moving essay. And it's it's not very long and it's very powerful. It's one I reread often. Yeah, it certainly attracted me as well. I need to take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Ms. Julia Tertian. She is the author of a terrific little bombshell of a book titled Feed the Resistance, Recipes and Ideas for Getting Involved. You know, in your collection of people to contribute to your book, I wonder, what did you say to them? You know, what did you, how did you invite them to participate? And what was the framework that you gave them? Yeah, so this book happened really fast, which is the disclaimer I'll give. And most cookbooks from the idea of it and maybe the proposal to when it gets on a shelf or into a kitchen, it's usually at minimum a two-year process. And this book came together in about six months, you know, from start to shelf. And the book started with, basically a one-page email to my editor who I was working with. You know, I was on deadline for a whole other project, and I had this idea. And I explained the idea to her, and I explained what I thought it could be and what it would look like and who I wanted to reach out to, that I wanted the book to, all the money to go to the ACLU. So I put this all in this one email, which was basically me asking my editor to sign up for a book that wasn't on their schedule, to do it immediately, to bring on all these people who, many of whom, I think maybe all of whom, you know, she hadn't worked with, and, you know, also to not make any money. And, you know, publishing is a business. So these were a lot of big asks. And to her credit and and to Chronicle Books, my publisher, she said, yes, and let's do it right now. 
And so when I reached out to people, I sent kind of a similar note, sort of explaining what my vision was, why I wanted to do this, what impact I thought it could have. I was also very purposeful in letting them know who else I was reaching out to, and not just that it was going to be a group of people, but here are the people I'm talking to, to sort of let everyone know about the community I wanted this book to be born from. And so that was a part of explaining the why of the book, the ethos of it, the feeling. And then I wasn't very prescriptive. And I did that on purpose, mostly because I wanted people to give whatever recipes or essays they felt strongly about. And I had the kind of ideas for, there's three categories of recipes in the book. And the first is really quick and easy meals. The second is meals for large groups. And then the final is baked goods and things you can take with you, sort of portable food, snacks and stuff like that. So I had those kinds of ideas of the section. So I mentioned those. And then I just asked people if they were game. They had an idea for a recipe that might fit into one of those sections. And beyond that, I wasn't very specific and I was very open. And the result is a book that is just so much better than I ever could have imagined just on my own. And everyone brought their personal stories and people who inspired them with them into the recipes. And the recipes represent such a diverse range of just places and people. And there's everything from a Somali pasta sauce to the vegan gumbo from Bryant Terry, an amazing Brazilian fish pot pie from Maya Camille Broussard. So it's, it's this amazing group of recipes. And when I reached out to people about the essays, I was a little bit more specific, but not, you know, I didn't give anyone like a title and a thesis by any means. I just sort of explained why I thought they were someone I would really love to hear from in this book and why I valued their work and could they bring their work to this book in a way that felt good to them. For example, Jordan and Drive Change and yeah, again, the result is something just way bigger and more meaningful than I ever could have imagined. And I'm so grateful to all the contributors. Yeah, it's really fantastic in that it has these inspirational essays, gentle invitations to activism. It's a how-to guide to be more involved, to make a better world through food. And then you combine that with easy and delicious recipes. I mean, honestly, I don't know what could be better than that. But <laughs> I do want to ask who do you want to read this book? Mm, that's a great question. I mean, everyone. I definitely think anyone who is wanting to be more involved in whatever way that speaks to them, so in their community, maybe at their college or in their family or in local politics, on a national level, it could be anything, but anyone who's really looking to get a little bit more involved but isn't quite sure how. And I think that this book gives you a lot of ideas for ways to do that and really just easy ideas and approachable ones and can start with just having a meal in your home and maybe cooking a recipe from someone who's new to you and understanding why that recipe is important to them and then you know maybe thinking about who you invite to your home to enjoy that meal can start at that level and that's in and of itself really important work. And I think so many of us take for granted the power in feeding someone else. It is one of the most important care-providing things that we do. We are keeping people well or not. We are supporting a system or not, depending on those food choices. So there's just so much wrapped up in food, as you've described before. But I think having this guide 
better helps us see those connections. And I would like to suggest that this book be sold to high school students who are by nature wanting to make a difference and entering this world with multiple troubles ahead, not the least of which is climate change, but all related to our food. So I think that's an audience, if I might just suggest, that we recommend this book to, as well as book clubs and all of those other channels, people that belong to churches or community groups that are looking to make a difference. This is your tool book with a recipe. Well, I want to jump to some of your other work, if we might. You know, one of your popular books is Small Victories in the Kitchen, and then you've also been conducting writing and recipe development classes. One of the classes that you teach is titled Family Meal Writing Class. What would it be like if I took that class? What would I expect? Hmm. I love teaching that class. And, yeah, there's a bigger course that has different people teaching things, and it's run by... Kari Stewart, and she invited me to teach this writing class, and I love teaching it, and I, I would love to teach it again. And it's very much about, we had a group of students who, some were interested in writing about their family's recipes, and others just interested in writing about food in general. And basically, I brought some samples of different work that's meant a lot to me, you know, written by other cookbook authors and people who have written about food. We focused a lot on Edna Lewis, who to me was just one of the most important people ever to write about food. And then I gave them some exercises of things to, like writing workshops I took in college, sort of jumping off points. And it's really a class and a conversation about how food can be just one of the best and most descriptive ways to tell stories and to talk about people. And it's why I love what I do so much because I love the food. I'm always excited about what's for dinner. But more than that, I really just love the stories behind it. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't you give me an example of a taking off point in case people at home are listening and they want to maybe do some writing inspired by you? Sure, yeah. One of the kind of fun prompts was what's the biggest mistake you've ever made in the kitchen? Just because I think in those moments that we see as mistakes, Again, a lot of description can come out of that, but also lessons, and that's always fun to write about and read about in any moment when you've learned something. I think another prompt and just a question I love to ask everyone is, what was their favorite food growing up? What meal did you want to have on your birthday? That kind of thing. I think that brings up a whole just enormous file of of memories and fun things to write about. Mm -hmm. From your perspective, are people cooking more or less these days? I'm always kind of not quite sure about that because I definitely think from my perspective more. I think people are definitely cooking more, but that's because I spend a lot of time talking to people who right. love cookbooks, you know, so I'm definitely biased. But I think in general, I'm, I'm very confident to say people are more interested in food than ever before. I don't know that that always translates to people actually cooking, but I think cooking at home is just one of the most wonderful things, and it's something I encourage everyone to do, and I absolutely have devoted my career and will continue to to try and give people tools to make that doable. Well, I'll provide a link to your website because you've got some great little video segments where you're teaching people how to make very simple dishes. That's important. I want to, in the last few minutes that we have, I want to talk about policy. And from your perspective, What kinds of policies do you think are most urgent right now to improve our food system and and improve access to a good food system? 
I think some of the most important policies right now to improve access really have to do with that, with access. I think any issues about food and specifically hunger in this country have nothing to do with a lack of food. We have more than enough. It's absolutely about access. And I think there are certain policies with farmers that are incredibly important. I think we have to support the people who are growing our food and are growing food that is safe and healthy to eat. And I think, yeah, making sure that food is available to everyone who needs it, which is everyone. So improving the way in which food stamps and those sorts of things are distributed and where they can be used and what they can be spent on. And something that I spend a lot of time thinking about and working on is the moment of education and even inspiration that can happen during the exchange of that food. So not just making sure people have the food, but making sure they know how to prepare it and what to do with it and to make food that they enjoy and look forward to sharing with their families. And to me, that's a very, it's a simple thing to do and it's a powerful thing to do. And I think it speaks to the, just honestly, a really simple and good recipe. It's an empowering thing. Mm-hmm. Well, Is there anything else that you would like to pull from this book? I'm speaking primarily about are there any particular recipes that you think are especially wonderful? Are there any interviews or essays that you feel you would really like to bring forth to our listeners? I think we spoke about so much of what's in the book, and it's hard to pick one thing. But one recipe that always comes to mind that I always love pointing out is in the back of the book, and it's from Cheryl Day, who is an incredible baker and author. She's based in Savannah, Georgia, and she and her husband run a bakery called Back in the Day Bakery. And Cheryl gave a recipe for these chocolate espresso pie bars to feed the resistance. And I always like to mention them because, A, they're just delicious. It's a wonderful recipe. And Cheryl is just such a gifted baker and writes really incredible recipes. And So there's that. But most importantly is the story behind the recipe. And Cheryl was inspired by Georgia Gilmore, who was a woman who is, I think, just beginning to really get the acknowledgement she deserves. And she was so inspirational. And Georgia was a woman who, during the Montgomery bus boycotts, ran something called the Club from Nowhere, which was essentially a group of pretty sure all women who cooked and baked as a way to support the civil rights movement. And they would prepare this food and then sell it to everyone who was part of the boycotts. And it was a way to feed people, to feed their community. But then they also used the money from selling the food and put it right back into the movement. So they gave the money to the Montgomery Improvement Association, which was responsible for things like buying the gasoline and the tires for the cars that were transporting people because they were boycotting the bus system. And I think it's such an incredible reminder of just the logistics that are involved with any fight for civil rights and for human rights. And when people stop using the bus system, they still need to get from A to B. And how is that going to happen? And the organizing that goes into that. And I think Georgia Gilmore found a way to use food as a way to be an essential part of the civil rights movement. And it's she's an incredible story, and it's an incredible legacy to look back on, and one that absolutely informs so much of the work that I do and so many others do. So that recipe leads to that story, and I think it's absolutely worth pointing out. Well, this little book 
has a large collection of essays and recipes just like you've described here in our short time together. And I want to thank you so much for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at Kopian Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And again, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Julia Tertian, author of Feed the Resistance, Recipes and Ideas for Getting Involved. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you so much for having me.